we're going to dive in. Uh, no singing this week. I'm sorry, I did not prepare it, but we're going to go into the uh, lecture. So <clears throat> that was quite a lesson and lecture last week for those of you who were with us. So I'm going to cherry pick one paragraph here. Um, but I think Matthew uh, 24 verses 15 through 21 do a good job of capturing the overall mood that we were left with last week. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful will it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers? Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. It's grim stuff. The end of days is a reality, and it's a reality we must mentally come to terms with, even if, at least in my opinion, we are fortunate and are not actually alive to see all of this take place. So a chapter that we read, like last week, begs the question, so I've got this information, I've got this knowledge. What on earth am I supposed to do with this? We know the Lord will come again someday. And when he does come again, there will be great distress. Got it. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? How are we supposed to act? Matthew 25 contains Jesus's instructions on this issue. That's why these two chapters really need to be understood as one whole. This is a big topic. It would have been too much to cram into one lesson. So kind of last week ends just like, and it's like, yay, the world's going to end. It's going to be terrible. Uh, it just kind of leaves you there. But this week kind of completes it. Matthew 24 tells us what is going to happen. Matthew tells 25 tells us what we're supposed to do with that, what we're supposed to do in the meantime. So we're going to take these three parables, kind of two parables and one story, starting one at a time with the parable of the 10 virgins first. So... When I first read this parable, and I've just kind of seen it in the past, I was a little confused about why they're called virgins, why their virginity is mentioned, and what's going on with the bridegroom. Like, is this some weird, like, polygamous marriage or something? I just, I did not grasp this um, at first. So they try to see if, you know, it's like, you know, bachelor for, uh, for Jesus's time. Thankfully, Dr. Hannah gives us some context on the first century marriage that I, I found helpful and I needed to kind of get what was going on here. So in the first century, the marriage ritual was composed of several stages. If you thought weddings were a big deal now, you could argue they were a bigger deal back then. A parentally arranged contract between two families, the betrothal or engagement period of several months. When the marriage was finalized, you're officially married, but it was not con consummated. The wife was living with her parents still. Then there was this big event when the husband came to her house to take the bride to his parents' house. And then there was a wedding ceremony. And so there's like this big procession where they all go and they ceremonially go there. And then they go back to the bride parents' house and they have a celebration that could last up to a week. And then finally, everybody travels back to the groom's house and they can consummate the marriage. So this is the setting of the parable. There are friends accompanying the procession back to the groom's home after all these festivities for the final time. So you can really think of these uh, virgins as bridesmaids, maybe would be the more modern term we're using. I've also read maidens, sort of just indicating a younger woman. And they've come to accompany the bride and the groom during the journey, the final journey from the bride's house to the groom's house. 
For some reason, it's not really important, the groom is a long time coming for his bride. So the 10 virgins don't know when it's going to happen. And they all fall asleep. So in this parable, Jesus is the groom. He's coming for his bride, the church. We are the bridesmaids, the virgins, waiting for him to come back. And it has been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. And we still don't know when he's coming back. So it's natural to fall asleep under these circumstances, both in our life and in the parable. In the parable, the ceremony takes place late at night, and we're only human, so it's kind of natural to just drift off. Everyone else is doing it. To me, this acknowledges the reality that we can't literally spend every minute dwelling on the topics of like Matthew 24, waiting every day thinking about the inevitable Lord's return. If that's all you thought about all day, every day, it would be crippling. On some level, you have to fall asleep. But will you be prepared when there is a cry at midnight calling, here's the bridegroom, come to meet him? Five of the virgins were, were wise and ready as they had bought uh, oil and lamps for the oil. So the kind of the context for the ceremony is the, the bridesmaids, the virgins would be walking, holding fire, and they'd be walking to the procession house, you know, maybe sort of how we would throw rice, except no wedding I actually went to through rice. So that's, that's just the outdated analogy. So, but five of the virgins were foolish and not ready as they did not bring any oil. They had their lamps indicating that they knew this was going to happen someday, but they had not prepared. And now the hour was upon them. The question notes get into this more uh, with more depth, but oil is often used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. This helps me understand why the other virgins, bridesmaids in the story, simply just can't give their oil. I understand that parables are there to make one point, and if you start digging deep, too deep into every detail, you will get lost in the parable weeds. But it strikes me as a little odd and selfish that, like, you can't just let them have a little bit of oil. Like, how much oil do you need? But I can't give somebody the Holy Spirit. That belongs to God and God alone. You need to have the seal of the Holy Spirit when Jesus comes again, when he marries the church and ushers in new creation. At some point, there will come a time where there is no more time left. You either have oil or you don't. You either have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or you do not. That's what happens to the foolish virgins in the story. They run out of time. They go to buy oil. The wedding banquet starts and the door is shut. And even though the bridesmaids, uh, the foolish um, bridesmaids, foolish virgins call the groom Jesus, Lord, Lord, the time is too late. At this point, Jesus has come again, and there is no more time to get prepared. We are then told to keep watch because we do not know the day or the hour that he will return. So what are we supposed to take away from this parable? Just that we need to be ready to see Jesus again. We need to accept him as Lord and we need to receive the seal of the Holy Spirit before it is too late. At some point, we don't know when, it will be too late. It's been a long time since Jesus first came. We have no idea how much longer it will be. I mean, I feel comfortable saying the world is asleep at the moment. And that slumber is like most likely just to get a deeper slumber as history continues to progress. So, how do we get ready for this? My first principle of the night answers that question. Ready for Jesus' return requires knowing Jesus as Savior. We must know Jesus as our Savior before he returns, because, again, at some point, it will be too late. God is incredibly patient with humanity, just as he was with Israel. 
been 2000 years. I'm, I'm grateful it's been that long because I appreciate being alive. But at some point, judgment will happen. And part of that judgment will include getting to be included with the wedding of Jesus in the church. If you want to be part of that ceremony, ushering in new creation, you have to be prepared. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to know that Jesus is Lord. And you need to do it before it happens, because at some point, we don't know when, we don't know the hour, the door will shut. Our second section tonight is over the second parable, the parable of the bags of gold. Or if you're reading maybe from an older translation, it'd be the parable of the talents. So a talent is a large amount of money. It's estimated to be around 20 years worth of wages for your average laborer somewhere in that ballpark. So I think that's the additional context we need to fully understand the story, which is another parable about what Jesus will be, what it will be like when Jesus comes again and what we're supposed to do with that kind of the theme. Let's jump into the text, starting with verse 14. <clears throat> again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, he gave two bags. And to another one, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more bags. So also the one with the two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag of gold went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So in the story, the master, as far as filling in God, Jesus, goes away on a jersey. On a journey, Ooh, just like Jesus has left us for some time. But he's coming back. We know he's coming back. But in the meantime, he has entrusted his wealth to us. If you're curious, five bags of gold would be worth about $3.5 million today. We're just doing some rough equivalent. Two bags, about $1.4 million, and one bag, $700,000. So God has entrusted us with our financial resources, but these bags of gold represent more than just wealth, you know. They represent what God has given us in our life, our skills, our knowledge, our resources, our aptitudes, everything. God has given us a great gift worth a lot of money. And God knows what our abilities are, and he has entrusted us with the amount of talents, amount of gold, so to speak, that we can handle. So what are we to do with all that God has trusted us? We're supposed to put it to work. When we understand who Jesus is and who God the Father is and how he has empowered us with the Holy Spirit, we're moved to do good works. We'll get, we'll get more into this in the next section. The works reveal our faith. They show our faith is alive and it's not dead. And what happens when we put it to work? God will ensure that we bear fruit and the kingdom will spread. Notes two people, they bore fruit. They did what God had asked. It does feel scary not to have Jesus physically here with us, you know, away on the journey. The spirit is here. God has entrusted us with all that we have and he has ensured us that if we put it to work, it will bear fruit. So Brady brought this up in leaders' meetings, so thank you. But C.S. Lewis does a great job showing his book, Mere Christianity, how, we, how all that we have belongs to God, including things that you might not think about, such as like your disposition or your personality type. Lewis used a hypothetical example of this non-believer named Dick Firkin. That's really the example name he uses. I don't I know why. And he's this Dick Firkin is nicer than a believer. Dick Firkin is a non-believer. And Miss Bates is the believer. And to everybody in the world around them, everyone sees that, hey, this Dick guy, he's nicer. He's just naturally nicer than Miss Bates. Therefore, clearly something is wrong with Christianity. So he kind of rebuts this and he's in how God sees things differently than we do. So I'm going to quote here a little extensively from Lewis. 
You cannot expect God to look at Dick's placid temper and friendly disposition exactly as we do. They result from natural causes which God himself creates. Being merely temperamental, they will all disappear if Dick's digestion alters. The niceness, in fact, is God's gift to Dick, not Dick's gift to God. In the same way, God has allowed natural causes working in a world spoiled by centuries of sins to produce in Miss Bates the narrow mind and jangled nerves which account for most of her nastiness. He intends in his own good time to set that part of her right. But that, but that is not, for God, the critical part of the business. There is a paradox here. As long as Dick does not turn to God, he thinks his niceness is his own. And just as long as he thinks that, it is not his own. It is when Dick realizes that his niceness is not his own, but a gift from God. And when he offers it back to God, it is just then that it really that it begins to be really his own. For now, Dick is able to take a share in his own creation. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. We try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. Like that last point, especially in reflection of this parable. So this section, I read uh, Mere Christianity last year for the first time. This section really struck me when I first read it. Um, I am a natural, as a person, I am pretty slow to anger. God has gifted me with that. When I start to think this is my own doing, however, and not God's gift for me to share, it's easy to get resentful of the people closest to me, the obvious one being Marissa, my wife. I'm not going to go on a limb. I am slower to anger than she is. So when I'm thinking that God, this is my own doing and not God's gift to me, it's really easy to get in the headspace of and blame others. Why can't you be more like me? the obvious good person here. Why am I always the peacemaker? It's not fair. But then when I realize that God has gifted me with this high level of patience, I want to use it to bless others. I am grateful. I am thankful for it. I feel comfortable saying that since we started dating, since we've been married, Marissa is slower to anger. That is an influence that God has been able to use in me and my gifts to influence her. So fair is fair. We got to talk about how she's influenced me. Marissa has had plenty of positive influence on me. So one thing that I would attest to her, she's modeled for me what it means to truly love and care for your family. Her love for family is incredibly deep and rich. And seeing her love her mothers and her sisters, it has made me a better son and a better brother to my siblings, my parents. They've all commented about that I'm, I'm more present, I'm more active, I'm more engaged as a member of the family than I was for a long time. So not only does she model that behavior for me, she actively encourages me to take time for my family and reminds me that they're important. So that's kind of how I see it. God and the Holy Spirit have used her gifts to influence me, the kingdom, the talents, and these bags of gold, they continue to grow. God has each entrusted us with something and we've been able to spread it to each other. At some point in the story, the master returns, just like at some point in history, Jesus will return. And at that point, we have to account for him with how we've lived our lives. The first two servants report to the master what they have done. They both have doubled the amount of gold they were entrusted with. Notice the master has the same response to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We might think that the master is happier for the servant that ended up with 10 bags than the one that uh, just ended up with, man, two, four, four. 
I'd forgotten before. Yep. He has allotted each of us according to our ability, though. So he knows exactly what our fruit should be. And he's not really in the business of judging us against each other. Also, the master says they, they, to both of them that you've been faithful with few things. I don't know about you, but if someone just plopped 3.5 million in front of me to steward, I would think that God is putting me in charge of a lot. But new creation is going to be so much more. And I think it's what this illustrates. Whatever our future has in store for us is going to make this life seem like we were just in charge of a few things, no matter what God has entrusted with us. But there's one servant who buried the master's money, and he too has to account to the master when he comes back. Let's read his response, starting in verse 24. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. So the servant says he knows the master and is afraid of him, so he had his his gold in the ground. I've been struck by the servant's understanding of the master this week. This master has been given them a great amount of wealth at their disposal. He's praised these other two servants for their hard work, each according to the ability. He set them up for success. Does this seem like a hard man? Does God really seem that hard to us just because there is judgment? We are to fear the Lord, but that's to do with awe and deference. This man knows the Lord and is afraid of him and has completely misjudged his character in the process. Because if he knew Jesus, if he knew God's character, was actually like, he would not draw that conclusion. So we've revisited these Matthew 11 verses a couple of times, but I just want to remind ourselves of it in light of the servant's, in my view, misunderstanding what the master is like. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what God is really like inviting all the weary and burdened to find rest for their souls, gentle and humble in heart. But when you know God or are aware of him and decide to reject him, hiding, all away, hiding away all the gifts and resources and you know, who you are, hiding all of that away, not even bothering to do the bare minimum, which in the story would have been putting the money in the bank and letting it collect interest, then you won't have to account to him and receive his judgment at that point. At the end of the day, during the second coming of Jesus, we who know Jesus and have served him faithfully will receive an abundance of the Father's love and his gifts. But those who have rejected the Father, they will have what they have taken away from them, and they will be cast into darkness, where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like in the previous parable, at some point in the story, it is too late. The master comes back. At some point in the story, in our story, in history, Jesus is going to return, and we will need to account for what we've done with all that he has given us. My second principle for tonight is readiness for Jesus's return inspires faithful stewardship and service. We who know the Father, we who know Jesus, we know what it's actually like are not scared of God. Instead, we are inspired by his immense love for us and for all the gifts that he has given us. We want to faithfully steward what we've been given our very lives. Someday we have to tell God what we've done with all of the natural gifts, resources, aptitudes, our life. But those of us who have the Holy Spirit and are trying our best faithfully to serve, we don't need to be afraid of this meeting because we know what God's answer is going to be for us. Well done, 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The final section for tonight is the sheep and the goats. It's more of a discourse than a pure parable. Passage is separating about separating believers from unbelievers at the end of the days. And also gets into how works is the evidence of our salvation, which is by grace. So before we get into the meat of the passage, let's talk about, how, about what Jesus refers to himself here in the first verse. The son of man. This is the title. Jesus refers to himself and is a reference to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. So in the previous, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Daniel chapter. Previous verses of this chapter, Daniel has this crazy dream where he sees all these beasts that represent the rulers and the kingdoms of the world. And eventually they're all de defeated by God, um, who's referred to as the Ancient of Days. And then out of nowhere, we're introduced to this new character, the Son of Man. This is Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is what it will look like when Jesus comes again. Jesus is connecting himself to this Daniel figure, one that they would have all understood and been aware of and been waiting for. This is the glory that Jesus is referring to. All nations and peoples will worship him. His everlasting dominion will never be destroyed. But as we've already seen in the previous two parables, there'll be those who get to enjoy this everlasting kingdom and those who will not. So Jesus talks about the separation that will occur, you know, right before this. And he compares it to sheep being separated from goats. It's another analogy that was lost on me, but it would have made more sense in a pastoralist culture. So it's still common for sheep and goats to be intermingled when they are grazing together. I guess they can all graze together, but they need to be separated at night. Sheep can tolerate the colder weather while goats cannot, so you can put them in different places. So Jesus addresses the sheep first. I want to read a big chunk of this passage, starting with verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. There's a lot of goodness in this passage, starting right off the first verse. We have an inheritance prepared by our heavenly father. An inheritance is something you do not earn. It's something that is given to you. This is given to us by the father. And he has blessed us. And he's prepared for this moment. He's been preparing for the moment of new creation since the beginning of creation. These words really make me feel how much God loves his children. Notice what Jesus says to his sheep and how they respond. For I was hungry, and gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. When did we do this to you? The children will say. When we did, when you know they did it um, for the least of these, or when you do it for the least of the brothers and sisters of Jesus, you do it for him as well. 
These are powerful words, but they can kind of get people to get tripped up, making people think that works are what will save them. Kind of, if you only read this passage of the Bible and no other passages, that's a, that's a reasonable conclusion you could draw. But no verses in Ireland, no passages in Ireland. We've gone over other examples in Matthew that explain why works do not save us. Thinking about the rich man going through the eye of the needle, but anything is impossible. Anything is possible with God. It's worth repeating: by grace alone, we are saved. So why then does the king make these comments about his children? This passage shows how works are evidence of our faith. God doesn't say, welcome to the kingdom, those of you who read your Bible the most. He doesn't say, welcome to the kingdom, those of you who attended church every single Sunday. He said, doesn't, he doesn't say, welcome to the kingdom, those of you who are fastest at sword drills, finding books in the Bible. Reading the Bible, attending church, memorizing scripture are good things but they are good things only if they cause you to grow in your faith, which is evidenced by your works, the fruit that we bear. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the best chapter on love in the Bible, if I speak in the tongues of men or, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So these verses, the ones in Matthew, also show why the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and they're intertwined. And really, together, they are the greatest commandment. We need to know the king and follow him so that when we do things for the least of them, we do it because we know what it means to be loved and to love. We're doing it with the right reasons for the right intentions, not to try to you know, get enough points to get into the good place. And how do we know we love God with everything that we have? We do that by loving the least of these, by seeing a stranger, inviting them in, and giving them clothes when they need it. So I heard a fantastic example at church yesterday of someone who's living this kind of life and its impact on others. So if you ever watch this, Pastor Bill, thank you. I'm stealing this directly from your sermon. So Mary Carr, she's a best-selling author and poet. She's most famous for her memoir, The Liars Club, if you're familiar with that. A longtime agnostic, she converted to Catholicism recently. And she gave an interview to a Jesuit magazine about how Jesus finally got her attention. She says, and I met this really amazing priest, Father Joseph Kane. I realize now how almost no one else could have converted me. He was exactly what I was not interested in. I remember when I did the Ignatian exercises, asking him, did you ever do these? He said, oh, I can never read all those books. But he was incredibly humble. He lived his life as though whoever came in front of him was sent by Jesus. The last line of her statement has really struck me since I have heard it on Sunday, so much so that I put it in here last minute. He lived his life as though for whoever came in front of him was sent by Jesus. It was convicting because I definitely do not live my life like this. Like everyone who comes in front of me is sent by Jesus. But that's what I need to be shooting for. That is the goal. I love BSF and the discipline that it brings, all this knowledge that it has sharpened in me. But in the end, when I stand face to face with Jesus, he's going to ask me how I loved his children, his brothers, his sisters. I know that God is love and that he loves me. And I just really need to believe this more and more 
every day so I can go out and show it. Because the goats, it is the people who don't know Jesus, whose works show that they did not have faith in our Savior. They will not receive eternal life, but eternal punishment. Jesus made this point in all three parables. It's hard to hear every time. At some point, there will be a separation, a point where there is no time left. We don't know the hour, as the first parable made clear, but it is made, but it is coming. And we need to understand this judgment as much as we need to understand his saving work and how it impacts us. My final principle for tonight is readiness for Jesus' returns means being personally prepared to meet him face to face. We will meet him face to face someday, uh, whether we believe or not. We'll be led into eternal life or eternal punishment. God has promised us of this. We know God is a promise keeper. I want to be prepared to be in Jesus. I want to have my oil ready, to be ready to show him what I've done with my life and how I've taken care of the least of these, how I've loved them all. And I want this because I know who Jesus is and what he has already done for me. Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. This is all that you've taught us, God. I just pray that you would be with the discussion groups tonight. This would be just fruitful discussion as we just reflect on um, these truths and what it means um, to live out in readiness um, for your return. In your son's name we pray. Amen.